Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join HealthBird community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting guest, a guest that has done it, you know, before, you know, he sold his his last company actually for quite a bit. Uh, well, he sold several companies, not just one. Uh, but uh, but again, we're going to be talking a lot about deal making, organic and inorganic M&A, uh, raising money, uh, all the good stuff that we like to hear. And also culture, you know, culture is something so important that uh, people are not paying that much attention to nowadays when it comes to building companies. And it's a massive mistake. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Yanis Sek. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to meet you. Thanks for having me. So originally you grew up in Bremen. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there in Germany? Yeah, it's uh, pretty rainy, cold, uh, so weather can't can't uh, can't hurt me. No, it's been it's been good. I I like growing up there for sure. And one of the things that you did, which is remarkable, um, it was working with disabled children. So how did that thing, idea come about? Yeah, I mean, after my A-levels, uh, I had to do a social service. So I did that in, in the UK between London and Cambridge. And yeah, I worked in a care center for disabled children for around nine months. Uh, so pretty far away from, I'd say, the world here we are living in day to day. But it's a, it's a very humbling and uh, interesting experience. Um, and yeah, also interesting to, you know, live on 50 
pound a week uh, in in England, but that's a different story. You know, you know one one thing that they, that just hit me. You know, as you were saying this is, I find that founders, you know, they're always focusing on the finish line, and they forget about the journey and appreciating, you know, some of the things that you accomplish along the way. And I find that when you're able to work with, you know, let's say people that you know are are experiencing, you know, this type of um, of, of hurdles uh, in life, right? And uh, and obviously you get to experience that. And and I guess what what really hit me is what what would you say that you got about gratitude and appreciation, and especially you know like uh, appreciating you know like where you are, what you have, who you are, where you've come from. You know, when you're able to experience with people that they perhaps you know have had a, a little bit more of a difficult life. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in general, uh, uh, you know, having parents who love you, support you, is, is something that is uh, obviously a great start into life. And if you look globally, I think it's very easy to forget uh, that most things can't be taken for granted, whether that's health. You know, whether that's, you know, running water or being in, you know, climate zones that are not as disrupted from what's coming and already, you know, a reality for many people. So I think that's a general theme. You know, the more you see and experience that, like you, you don't, you know, um, yeah, you should, should appreciate many things and. I think especially the journey you, you're referring to, I think that's something, you know, which is ultimately, I think, a goal for everybody to find, you know, what is the journey you enjoy doing in your life. And, uh, yeah, I'm getting close. I'm not sure if I'm already there, but for sure something, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, because I think that fundamentally as an entrepreneur, at least that's always been, you know, a common theme is like, you know, you raise around and say, great, what's next, you know? And we realized that at some point we didn't do any closing dinners anymore. Now we still haven't done one for back, for example, which we sold to Personio. And, you know, we're, we're talking about it, but we still haven't done it because there's so much stuff going on and time is limited. But I, I you know, I think it's not, not necessarily about just celebrating the wins, um, but more finding something you truly love and, yeah, happy to dive a lot deeper into that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love the fact that you're talking about joy because people typically talk about happiness and happiness is instant. You know, something makes you happy, a moment makes you happy, you know, whatever makes you happy. But then that happiness is gone. But joy, you know, joy is is what you what carries you, what is there, you know, what it can be there with you as you continue to live life. So I, I love, you know, how you how you really pointed, you know, that out now. In your case, you got interested on in how the world works, uh, and uh, and I guess you know that's you know the way that you perhaps you know started to to see problems and how to bring solutions to them, and and that got you into economics. So walk us through you know what ultimately sparked that interest, and in, and especially getting into the world of economics too. Yeah, I mean you know I think that you know this idea of what you want to do, you know I I think you know I had a variety of different interests and i as as you mentioned was very interested in like trying to understand how the world works and you now if you if you think about it i i think that the you know economy over time has taken control of many different things so it's kind of an overarching system 
that has, you know, big impact on political system, you know, arts, you know, all sorts of areas. And, you know, for good or for bad, right? Like, I'm not judging this, but I, that was my early observation, you know, when I was around 19. And so I wanted to learn more about that um, and, and just went deep into it. Um, but then also very quickly realized that, you know, kind of if you go macro, right, like uh, there's like so many fundamental problems um, and then the question is, what do you want to do with your life and how do you want to have impact? Right. So I don't know. I, even as a child, you know, I, I started, you know, I don't know, creating a sometimes joke, right. And I, when I was eight, for example, sold my own perfume, which you know, we created on the street, which is crazy. If you think about it now, and then, it, you know, I started organizing parties or you know became a dj and you know i was always trying to create something um and i just felt like you know creating something out of nowhere and whether that's the social system as a company you're building creating a product or you know like uh essentially having a mission that's something i i just really enjoyed and found very early on with with my first company with like 21 you know so then uh, the first company that, that you did, you know, it didn't have the outcome that you had hoped for. And uh, as they say, you either succeed or you learn. So in this case, it was the latter. So what was the lesson to be learned from this experience? I think the lesson was that we, we had no clue about nothing. and <laughs> We had to learn a lot more. The way I always thought about it is like, look, I'm, you know, 21 in my second semester. What can I lose? Right. There's nothing I can lose. I can only learn. So I think optimizing when you're young for learning and whether it's you're starting a company or you're joining people who are really smart and you can learn from them. I think that's almost the, the most important thing when you're young. And, you know, when I was actually, you know, finishing my bachelor degrees, you know, I was thinking about either I study math because I fell in love with a woman, you know, who was actually still studying in that city or, you know, I, I go out and just do what I already knew I wanted to do, start a next company. And that's essentially what I did, you know, in 2009. Um, and it was quite, you know, now it's like a very common thing. But back then, it was very alien to start internet companies, you know, technology companies. It wasn't a big thing. Like people wanted to do investment banking, consultancy, um, you know, on the engineering side, work for like a big corporate or become a chief of staff. But like that wasn't the thing. And and I just, you know, I don't know. I I just... I think through my first experience and then an internship in a, in a startup back then, you know, like I, I just realized that's kind of something I can really identify myself with um, because it's very driven out of, you know, what you create together in a small team. Um, and it's something where you very quickly get, gain a lot of uh, responsibility and learning experiences. And this was something I was, I was, uh, I was fascinated by. So. Fiber, you know, probably the, the the biggest success from start to finish that the, that you've had to date. Tell us about Fiber. How did the idea of Fiber, you know, come knocking? Yeah, I mean, you know, we uh, yeah we started Fiber in two thousand nine. You know, run it. I run it for eight and a half years uh, together with my co-founders, and uh, always been focused on product go to market. Uh, um, you know, the fundamental problem back then was. You had a lot of free-to-play games, and they received a lot of traffic um, and had challenges monetizing that traffic. 
Um, so that's how we initially started. And then, you know, through, I'd say, one and a half pivots, um, you know, one reactive, one proactive, we build a mobile supply side platform. So a tool which allows mobile apps to integrate, manage, and optimize all their different ad revenue vendors and um, a real-time bidding exchange on the back of that to, to drive revenues. Uh, so very fundamental, simple value proposition, fairly technical pro uh, a product, kind of API-based, uh, SDK-based back then even. And um, yeah, and, and uh, it was, a, I mean, majority of the business was in the U.S., um, and yeah, around 235 million gross revenue when I left uh, eight and a half years later. Um, yeah, happy to dive a lot deeper. What, what was the business model there with Fiber? How were you guys making money? Yeah, I mean, quite quite simple. You know, we, we essentially had a software you could install for free and then we took a cut on your ad revenues. Um, so yeah, we run it on around 30% margin um, and um, and 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 the the fundamental value problem was you know like we we obviously need to make you more money than competition, but you know the way we changed it, I think you know we we basically pivoted from an ad network business into a supply side platform, which is essentially the integration point for all things ad revenues. So we were mediating uh, different advertising networks um, uh, via layer that you could use to. Uh, is the integration optimization um, and uh, of of the different networks uh, plus you know your real time bidding exchange which again you know 2008 wasn't a big thing uh, but then over the years became a lot larger um, so real time uh, uh, auctions to essentially yeah uh, auction of the the advertising revenues yeah. so I mean hundreds of people um, you know hundreds of you know of million in revenue. So really remarkable journey. You know, that requires obviously a lot, you know, of people as, 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 as we just, you know, explained and the amount of employees that you had. So I'm sure that you got, you know, quite a few lessons, you know, there around culture. What did you get about culture from that journey? Yeah, I mean, maybe for context. So, so we, you know, the, the first six years we run the company, um, we raised around like 12 million. Um, we're quite, um, I'd say rigid with regards to you know spend um, and and that brought us around 80, 80 million gross revenue, one hundred fifty people, and then we sold the company, raised one hundred fifty million, pursued a buy and build strategy. It was also listed, um, and you know I, th I think that like uh, you know when you when you think of culture and the way we for example approach it now, based on the lessons we learned, I'd say. It's really your fundamental core operating principles, your mission, which you have to write down almost in the very early days. Uh, and then you, you need to incorporate that into the hiring process um, and into you know, who you promote, who you uh, potentially even need to take out of the business uh, based on some core operating principles. And I, I say operating principles because I think values often are interpretable. So like different people think of values in a different way. But if you make it very specific, um, then it's a lot easier to illustrate what it is. Yeah? And, and so um, I think you need a written document, which is a living document. You have to develop with the team. And then it's really fundamentally that you find people who are naturally alike that, right? That, you know, essentially 
work the way you outlined in the operating principle. And also you as the founding team needs to be like the operating principle. Um, because I, I fundamentally don't think people change, right? And it's not, there's no right or wrong culture. It's more like, is it a match? And so if you do that well, and you're very consistent with that, and then also you do the same when you promote somebody um, and also you fire against that, right? Like you basically create a much more consistent way of behavior within the company. Um, and I think the major lesson learned was that at some point, you know, we, we, I think we did a fairly good job of hiring early on, but then at some point we didn't anymore. We basically went too fast, too quickly, and we got too lax on the, on the hiring principles. And I think that's a fundamental mistake. And then I think also promotion versus, you know, attracting talent from outside. That's like another major challenge. I think most founders, right? Like, do I promote within or do I find that next, you know, experienced person? And is that experienced person actually in the details and can really do what I, you know, what I want, want them to do um, and fulfill that role? And you know, I think like typically VP, you know, executive hires, you know, they can be great if you find the right, but they can be disastrous and, and really, really not only harming your performance fundamentally, but harming your culture significantly. Right. And, and so, so I think, uh, yeah, I think there we definitely had a bunch of lessons learned. Um, um, and then, you know, the third thing is like, as soon as you go unorganic, you know, that is a lot harder to control, right? Like, because every company has its own way of working. And so it's very hard to identify whether that actually works together and, you know, how you want to actually then um, team up afterwards. So I think that's another major challenge, um, um, yeah, which, which we experienced. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
And the company ended up getting acquired for 150 million. So, you know, quite a nice outcome. And, you know, obviously one thing led to the next and the company ended up getting acquired for another 600 million plus. But, you know, in this case, you know, 150 million, you know, exit, make us an insider, you know, uh, here for a minute. You know, how was that process like? How did it come about? And, and then, you know, walk us through, through, through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that, uh, M&A, um, is, is, is generally, uh, something that like, you know, I mean, I fundamentally believe that like the best companies are never, never sold. Uh, and as a founder, I think you always have to make that judgment call of like, okay, if you can continuously grow this company, if the market allows for a much bigger outcome, why would you sell it? Right. I think it's like fundamentally not really interesting. Um, um, I mean, I think in our case, it was a specific case. Advertising technology in 2014 wasn't the hottest place to be. And there was a lot of platform risk, um, um, for, for many different reasons. You know, that said, like, um, we, you know, in, in our specific case, when I mean, we were about to raise a, a growth round and then, you know, basically we got inbound interest and that, that was how the, how the, how the deal came about. Um, you know, having, you know, invested and seen a bunch of different outcomes, I think there's different ways how you can approach it. Um, but I think it's about building a fundamentally good business first and then, you know, being strategic about, you know, what are your different options? Um, and, and, um, you know, if you build a really fundamentally good business, um, and you don't, burn too much money, then you don't need to sell it if you have a lo long horizon. And I think there's a bit going back to, you know, find your path, right? If you find your path, you can just run the company for a very long time and it's, it's fantastic. And that's probably what, you know, I think most entrepreneurs aim for. Um, you know, that said, I mean, if you, if you want to, if you want to go more, more rest, right? Like then I think it's really about knowing the buyer universe. It's about, um, you know, having a very clear understanding about the strategic value you offer. Uh, and then there's just so many different dynamics in terms of the reasons for buyers to buy you, right? And that could be, you know, technology built on, which, you know, for example, when Beck got acquired by Pezonio, you know, it was a very clear, you know, part of their roadmap to build something. And that was an acceleration. I think you see that in multiple industries where you do, you know, you acquire new logos or you acquire technology. Uh, and this is something we did afterwards as well. Then, you know, there's obviously, you know, revenue, uh, uh growth, um, you need to get into, especially in the mid market. And then I think on a strategic level, it's really like, you know, buying the next champion, right? So if you think of, you know, some of the acquisitions, I'd say maybe the, the best acquisitions in the world, like Instagram, uh, WhatsApp. Uh, YouTube, right? Like these were the number one players in their respective area and they have so much equity value long term and are fundamentally, you know, at the time being really expensive, looking back really cheap and basically changing the outcome of the, of the, of the acquirer. Um, so I think there's just a lot of different camps and I think being very explicit and rational about which camp you're falling into. And, you know, what are the uh, motivations for the buyers is, is actually is actually quite, uh, uh, quite important. Yeah. So obviously, after the transaction got done, 
you know, you ended up sticking around for a bit, but then, you know, you uh, eventually got into angel investments, uh, investing also with Point Nine Capital there as a venture partner. And that, you know, essentially, you know, was put in place too with a venture studio that you have built. You know, a venture studio, like you said, you know, you had, you know, some of those companies that you started there that uh, that you ended up selling. I'm sure that you got a lot, you know, during this time around ideas, you know, and execution and seeing patterns for what works, for what doesn't. And eventually this led you to starting, you know, your next company, WeFlow. So I guess walk us through what you got and what led you to understand that WeFlow needed to be your next chapter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for context, so I went out, started a venture studio, which is something I actually dreamed of doing, you know, um, you know, for, for many years, um, because we, you know, when we run fiber, we help start two other companies, which isn't really publicly known, but, you know, it's a, uh, it's a company called Remerge, um, which I'm still in the board of, and then a company called, uh, Latana, um, um, previously Daya Research. And, um, and so, you know, I, I had a flavor of how this could look like. And the idea was I do 10 companies in 10 years. I always start with the founding CEO to basically go into an ide ideation process, see if we find, you know, problems we're excited about, but especially the founding team is excited about build the founding team, you know, build the first, you know, initial 10 people team, first funding, first product. Um, and then go out and do it again and, you know, making sure that the cap table is respected that way, that it's a long-term scalable company and can create like, uh, a, 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 you know, good, good companies. I did that twice in three years, um, with two companies. And, you know, I, I think there's, I mean, there's many lessons of like, you know, kind of how do you find, you know, key insights and, and broken things. Um, you know, I got more and more interested in the future of work and, you know, and this fundamentally, like this experience led to my next long-term company called Reflow, um, which, um, you know, I think, you know, when you've done a few things, like going back to this notion of enjoying the path, right? You, you, you start thinking about things like, you know, the product I want to build, is that a good match with what I enjoy building, right? So I became very interested in the future of work and how software can actually help people in day-to-day. -day. And so one fundamental problem we solve is like every salesperson and customer success person in the world needs to update Salesforce and they all hate it uh, because it's very cumbersome and takes a lot of time from them, you know, selling. So can we make that better? And, you know, now, you know, uh, two years in, you know, you have calls with uh, salespeople and they, they tell you how much easier and faster it is. And that's something that I think impacts lives of people through software, which is, I think, really awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so really like, uh, you know, uh, workflow, workflow automation, feature of work was themes I was get, getting really interested in. And then just really building, you know, something long term around the notion of like, there's something fundamentally broken or something you think fundamentally different of, like, for example, CRM being, you know, the infrastructure layer, the middle layer system of record, but maybe not the best workflow tools for revenue teams to succeed, right? And then having experienced that in multiple instances at Fiber and various different other companies. Um, and then the second is like kind of what's the, you know, core fundamental premise. And I think that especially in SaaS, like you, 
like the strongest SaaS plays are where you can actually increase revenues. So something I, again, became very excited about because I think go-to-market, whether you're product-led, marketing-led, or sales-led, sales and you know success and account management, that always plays a role at most companies in the B2B world. So I became very excited about that. And, um, you know, and, and then, uh, uh, also building a, you know, bundled workspace, which essentially, uh, brings a lot of different tooling together into one experience from, you know, deal inside, partner management, forecasting, you know, data capture. Um, so building a bigger system, which potentially is not just a feature, but could expand into being, you know, a more holistic, uh, a platform play, right? So this is very specific to me now, right? But like, I think if you start something, like you need to be excited about the problems your customers experience and really have an urge to solve those. Um, and, um, and, 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 and I think that's uh, true, uh, for, you know, like some of the best companies that got built. So what's the uh, business model of WeFlow? We're a software company. Uh, you can basically get started just going to getweflow.com uh, and uh, you can essentially uh, improve your Salesforce hygiene, pipeline management, forecasting. Um, there's different tiers. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, so, so it's pretty simple, plain vanilla, seed-based pricing, um, plus in the future also some consumption-based uh, on top. Um, and all that is, you know, instantly available. We are like a very deep Salesforce integration currently. Yeah. Now, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of WeFlow is fully realized, what does that world look like? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I, I think, you know, if you, if you think about it from a value pro proposition standpoint, um, I'd say, you know, revenue teams like have fundamental understanding of where every deal stands and what are the next best actions to increase the likelihood of winning. Yeah. You have a team culture, which is very much centered around peak performance, but in a collaborative manner, uh, where, you know, like essentially the different layers of the revenue arc from, you know, individual contributors to managers to, you know, leaders to revenue operations all work together in essentially creating the best possible performing team and, you know, fundamentally also improve the customer experience. Um, and that is essentially a data-driven approach to running your operating cadence. Um, and, and also, I think, collaborative approach. Um, and ideally, you automate as much as you can, which is not core value. And I think that's like not just things like, you know, faster updating of your CRM. Those are how do you spend your time and where do you focus your time? So I think that's like the fundamental biggest impact. And that's true for various different layers of the equation. Um, if you think about, you know, most of the operating cadences and forecast meetings and, you know, conversations and how do you create accountability against those, there's a lot of inefficiencies in those just in the process part of it. Um, yeah, so, so I think, you know, uh, I think, I think that's like, uh, that's, um, that's the, the word I would, I would think of. Um, and I think that fundamentally creates more competitive companies and more competitive outcomes where a lot of time is just 
not wasted in uh, in in yeah repetitive, annoying, very manual processes and tasks. Um, um, so so yeah, I think uh, repeatability, accountability, predictability, all topics you know that you know become a reality and are often today in most cases not. And to enable the vision too, like how have you guys gone about raising money now? Because I mean, obviously, at this point, you're you're quite versed, you know, with understanding the investment side of things, and and also with what you've done before, you know, that uh, you had to endure that. So, how do you guys go about raising money and and also raising it from the right people, the right reasons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think uh, I think it's really about finding partners who believe in that vision and you know can help you uh, increase likelihood of success. So we did two rounds, a pre-seed round with a fund called Cherry Ventures, who have known similarly well, well to like 0.9, I'd say. So actually, you know, I funded some previous companies and have known them for a long time. They have, you know, all ex-founders. Um, so I think the entire cap table is actually ex-founders uh, somehow. Yeah. Um, and not saying that, you know, like, I, I think, you know, you don't need to be a founder to be a great investor, but I think you... Uh, I think it sometimes helps, um, 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 for sure to have a deeper understanding of the, 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 the realities most founders go through. Uh, we brought on board a bunch of fantastic angels, um, you know, having started companies that, you know, had, had breakout successes and then, uh, did another round with a fund called Great Adventures. It's one of the Google funds, more focused on the AI and ML side, which is also relevant to, to what we do. Um, um, and yeah, I think it, it goes really into, um, you know, like not just the funds, but also the people you work with. And similar to what I said on the culture side with who you hire, can you, you know, do you have aligned operating principles? Um, and, uh, can you have, you know, also like the more difficult conversations, um, you know, in a rational and focused manner? Um, and, um, and I think they, they always appear and they're always there. Um, and, um, and so, so yeah, really finding, finding true partners, I think is like the, the most important. So imagine I put you into a time machine now and I bring you back to that moment where you were studying business and economics and you have the opportunity of being right there in the classroom and whispering to that younger Janice, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I mean, there's so many, but <laughs> I think the, the number one, the number one thing is just don't hire if you feel you shouldn't hire. You know, I think it's like something you experience as a founder again and again. Like you hire and you somehow don't have the right feeling about it and you can rationalize it, but maybe you can't. And then you still do it. And six months later, you regret it. So like becoming amazingly, amazingly good at attracting the best people and creating a platform that the best people stick around and become very, very successful. I think that is just the most fundamental thing that scales. Um, but there's so many other things like timing, you know, problem, yada, 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 right? So, yeah. so for the people that are listening, Yanis, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Janis Sech, or send me an email to yeah, first name, last name at getreflow.com. Well, easy enough. Well, Janis, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us.
thank you so much for having me. It was, it was great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.